Days five hot takes, yeah! Hey guys, and welcome back to Days Five Hot Takes. I'm really excited about today uh, in this episode because it's an interview episode with my friend Kevin Griffin from Better Than Ezra, and many other things as you'll come to know. Um, but I will ask for some forgiveness. This is so embarrassing, but I was kind of talking off mic the whole time, and because I hadn't figured out how to monitor my own vocal, which is a whole other thing. I don't sound great, but Kevin sounds amazing, and that's all that matters. But trust me, I have rectified this problem that will not sound like that from now on. But just bear with me for, for this one episode that my vocal is going to sound a little bizarre. Um, he sounds great, which is all that matters. Um, and I liked the episode too much to be like, to either throw it away or ask him to do it again. So thank you all for your patience. I promise moving forward, it will sound a lot better than that. Kevin is a stud. Um, he's produced, written, and co-written albums and songs that have sold in the excess of 30 million copies. He's produced and written songs for Taylor Swift, Train, Sugarland, Bare Naked Ladies, Christina Perry, and James Blunt. Don't even heard of those people. Uh, including three number one smash hits, Stuck Like Glue by Sugarland, Collide by Howie Day, and Good by Better Than Ezra, his own band. Um, they started in 95... Their debut record, Deluxe, which I'm still obsessed with, went double platinum, uh, good off of that record, which everybody and their mother knows was the number one uh, song for them. He also, and they've sold millions of records since, um, he founded Pilgrimage Music Festival, which is a two-day festival down in Franklin, Tennessee. Um, uh, Justin Timberlake is Timberlake is a partner in that, which is really cool. It's an awesome festival. Um I haven't had the chance to go yet, but I know everybody their mother's been, and, and it, I plan on going very soon. It's an incredible, incredible thing to start a festival like that, and especially for it to be doing well. So that's that's as much um, applaudable as, as as all of his other ventures, because that's such a hard thing to do. Um, Kevin, for me, I, I, you know, he was one of the people that I wanted to do this with first, selfishly, because I knew it would just be such an easy thing for me to talk to him. I've known Kevin for probably about a decade now, and we've written couple times, first time I wrote with him, I thought I was going to wet my pants to be in his presence because Better Than Ezra is just a seminal band to me. They're a band that's just was such a huge part of my teenage years. Uh, quick story, when I, the day that my parents took me and my two younger siblings out of school in Mississippi to tell us, to take us to Jackson for the day to do some doctor visits and a little bit of shopping and stuff, they told us on the car, in the car ride that we were moving to Knoxville a couple months from then. And one of the ways that they sort of satiated <laughs> our sadness, they let me go and, and uh, they said, what do you, you guys can each kind of have like a treat because I know this is a hard day, which was not a usual thing. Don't know if that doesn't speak to my parents. They were wonderful and still are wonderful parents. Uh, so that was kind of a fun little moment. So anyway, I wanted to go to the record store and I bought um, Kenny Loggins live from the Redwoods and better than Ezra's deluxe, both albums to me, you know, I love dearly, but deluxe was, one of those moments in time, and this is why I think music matters so much to us, especially in our childhood years, where a huge season of life was happening, and, a, and I had a soundtrack to it in that record because I was listening to it so much. And so they just, that they, Kevin has just, his music has been a huge part of my growing up, and it's an honor to be a friend of his. Um, we had a really fun time talking. We talked about a lot of fun, crazy things. His hot takes are wonderful. I had so much fun hearing he's got a couple of really hot ones so put on your your oven mitts uh your catcher's gloves <laughs> i don't know what you need to handle hot things but put those on um but it was a real honor to have him and 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 uh i'm very proud to be a friend of his he's he's just such a wonderful dude and i think you know i'll say this lastly he's just a creative guy i mean it's so cool to see he's had such a long career in music um and that he's still creating as good and as much as he is now that's always fun to see you know, some of my idols still doing it so well because it's inspiring to me. So it was an honor to get to sit and laugh and learn 
uh, with Kevin. So y'all give it up uh, and 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 uh, get buckled up and ready for the hot takes that Kevin brings to us. So uh, without further ado, this is me and Kevin Griffin on Dave's Five Hot Takes. Okay, folks, this is an exciting day, year, month, uh, moment of my life. Um, here on Dave's Five Hot Takes, we have one of my favorites. Also one of the most handsome people. Do I tell you that? I feel like I tell you how handsome you are every time. Oh, God. But, it, you know, right back at you, Dave. <laughs> Don't say that. Don't do that. No, re- that really. If a little is my handsome. I'll take okay. it, but, I, but I'm more than just a pretty face. You are, and that's what we're going to do. That's actually what we're going to find today. So one of the things that I think is also funny about you, KG, if we can go there, is okay. that you, like my other tall friend, Charles Kelly, every time I see you, I think you get taller. People always think that I've gotten taller and then I've lost weight. I'm like, and, and as, as a result, I've grown in my whole life with this being self-conscious about about being too skinny. And I'm like, no, I'm the same height since 22. Yes. I weigh 193 pounds. I'm not too skinny. Leave me alone. But it's just, uh, but and and people who who battle weight probably go, screw you. I have I have no sympathy for you. But we all we all carry our burden. We all have our body shaming me. I'm a late bloomer with songwriting, with with growth of a physical and spiritual and musical. See, I disagree with that because so one of the things in spelunking the Kevin Griffin catalog. Oh, gosh. It'd be that better than Ezra or, you know, your own record um, is that. First of all, you don't take bad pictures. That was the first thing that I realized is whatever is happening. I don't know if it's the same person. I know my angles. But one of the things I really think that I think is really fascinating about you is you started really young. I mean, you were really young when y'all started Better Than Ezra. Well, uh, I was really young when I when I first performed. I was in second grade. I performed. It's a small world on a gondola for second in second grade. (laughs) And is there a better place to perform that? No, a gondola, small world. I was I was Little Italy in uh, Oak Grove, Louisiana, which was amazing. That kind of started, but but actually, you know, Ezra started better than I was always in bands, but better than Ezra started um, my junior year of college. But it wasn't until uh, we'd been been around. I was twenty seven when we got signed, but we lied about oh, our age. Wow. No, so it it said yeah, it said I was twenty five. So to this day. When if a local paper says you know musician Kevin Griffin of Better Than Ezra, I'm always two years younger than I actually am. <laughs> and my friends, my friends will call me up and go, "You're pathetic." But the math always follows. Like once oh, you yeah. cemented that, once you're in the databases, it's done. So I'm not, I'm not gonna. It, and it, yes, it, as a man is of a certain age, it's pathetic that I that I've lied my whole. <laughs> but I'm taking it. All that is is that's that's our version of lipo. It is, and but 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 I always kind of felt like I'm glad the perception is that I was young, but but no, we when when in '95 when Ezra took off, I was 27, and so it's funny because I thought we thought, oh my God, now at my ripe old age, I'm like 27, you're a baby, just relax. Well, but but hold on, so so but but if you do the math and keep going backwards, that means Deluxe would have been recorded though like a year before that, right? No, no, actually we started recording Deluxe in 92. I did it for a year in an apartment in West Hollywood on half inch 16 track analog tape. Oh my gosh. And uh, and then we put it out ourselves in 93 on our own label, but then it got signed by Elektra in February of 95 and then came out. So it actually proves true though, because that means you guys would have made that in your early 20s and you had a record before that. 
We did. We had uh, a well. It's more it's a cassette. A cassette. So that again, that sticks with the timeline of like you started writing that yeah. record. The oldest song on Deluxe was written in 1990, and that's Wah or Good. Yeah, Wah which means how old were you when you wrote that? Real age or? or let's do real age, not the real age. <laughs> so let's see. Four, 30, I was 22. Yeah. So so that's what I mean. Yeah. Like young. I mean, you were you had been doing Andy. That's not counting the record before that. Uh, so I I guess so, but 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 maybe it's because I've worked so much in Nashville, you know, as a songwriter, as a gun for hire, as we, we call it. <laughs> GFH. 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 <laughs> DB. Can I call you DB? Did your parents name you for decibels? Uh, the, the, yes, they knew. It was prevented. I think that's one of the things that I think is so fun about talking to friends who've played music for a while, because especially with this podcast with Dave's Five Hot Takes, it, you, you've you done this a while. Like, it, And I think that's why I asked the question about you starting when you did, is this isn't something that you know, later in your 20s, you're dabbling in songwriting and then you find, you know, this is something you, you've done for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And wait, and to, to finish the thought, you know, I work with so many artists who are 16, 17, 18 that I felt when I think of when it happened for me, I feel like a late bloomer. So just to just to close that loop, I don't there's always listeners are like, wait, they left that hanging. That's a loose end. And drive me cuckoo. <laughs> cuckoo. We're, we're pros, Kevin. <laughs> I did it for a long time. The first the first recording I made. I was 12, my band uh, entered a country talent contest for a local country station in Monroe, Louisiana, and we were a rock band. We performed rock songs, we played Cold Gin by Kiss, we did Cocaine by Eric Clapton, and and we did Jesse's Girl, then we did a Xanadu by Rush, the nine month long <laughs> epic. We had the most schizophrenic set list of all time, but we won the contest. See, there you go. I want to start laughing and I'm not really disciplined <laughs> about the thought of a 12 year old singing the themes of cocaine. Okay. And then Jesse's girl. Jesse's girl. Which are pretty like, I mean, those are pretty adult sort of themes. Well, there's, a, there's some type of connection. I'm not <laughs> astute enough to see it, but somebody out there can, there's some brilliance. It's, it's like, it's like a national treasure, Nicholas Cage kind of deal. There's some type. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it involves a Knights Templar and the, and the yes. skull, the, the Yale skull, skull and bones club. I can't figure this shit oh out. My I'm just a singer. I'm just a singer in the nineties. Yeah. You're here having a good time. So, so let me ask this as we, as we sort of embark on our, on our five hot takes before we get to number one, that's one of the things that I was so excited about having you on is it, is it you love music. You can tell that you're someone who has not only like you sang again, second grade was the first, you know, the outing of Kevin Griffin. So I think these things are especially fun for me, for people who really have like, you don't just make music, you have a real love for music. Yeah. And you know, the, you, it's a saying that you've heard so often, but I heard it again that, you know, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And we've both been so fortunate enough to, to be able to make a living playing music because that's all I ever really wanted to do since the first day my dad brought home Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, Elton John, and Houses of the Holy Led Zeppelin. Oh, wow. Yeah. That was the same day? My dad brought home five albums to me and my brother when he bought us a stereo with a vinyl player. It was Stevie Wonder, Inner Visions. Oh, my gosh. It was Sly and the Family Stone. It's the it's the white cover with Sly and black leather, you know, doing like a, mm -hmm. a kick. Mm -hmm. Kick, yeah. It was, it was Led Zeppelin, Houses of the Holy, Elton John, Elton John, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And then There Always Has to Be a Dog. It was a canned heat album. 
Hey, uh, but still, but still, you can world. do a lot worse. Yeah, so those are my five albums. But I knew since that moment that that when I just dove into the you know to the liner notes of of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, and if people remember, you open it up and there were all those. It was a double album, and so all these lyrics and the brilliant lyrics of Bernie Taupin and the in the the uh, Paul Buckmaster string arrangements. And, yes, yes, and, yes. And the melodies by Elton John. I was so hooked. And it's never ended, man. It's never ended. I don't know that I could pick four especially, but I'll throw in the canned heat. That's a really good introduction of music. I know, right? And my dad was not like a music aficionado. He loved Elvis and Joe Cocker and and uh, and, and Janis Joplin. But he wasn't like a, you know, a music snob. But those stand there. That is incredible. That is incredible. I bet it was some kind of, you know, early 70s version of Jack Black from High Fidelity. <laughs> Remember that, you know, he, he said, uh, you want this and uh, you want this. Yeah. And, and the minute your dad grabbed the share record, he slapped the share. Like, no, no, we shan't. What do you do? Is this for your kid? Is this for your kid? Don't you dare play him that. You don't okay? you dare do that. Okay. So with all of these things, this is where we start our five hot takes. So all of, all of this tutorial, it has brought you to this. So what's the first hot take? Hot take one. My first hot take is that in order to save music as we know it, some firebrand, some maverick, we have it, we don't know, or is already existing, needs to bring back the modulation in music. Mm. Somebody needs to bring back the key change, DB. And Come on, Kev, talk, preach. And in songwriting uh, these days, when we're writing a song, when we get when we do and and a modulation to the to the uninitiated is just changing the key. Usually you go up, you know. And these days we all laugh at it. We all kind of turn. We all look down our nose at it because instantly it cheeses out a song. It makes it sound like a Michael Bolton song. I love Michael Bolton, by the way. Thank you. Please make that clear. But there are these epic moments, like like Whitney Houston, "I Want to Dance with Somebody." Michael Jackson, man in the mirror, that the key change, when, when it happens, it's on the word change and they change oh, the key. Oh. Kevin, what happened? What happened to us? I'll tell you what happened. And I can say this. We're not as good a musicians as they used to be. Thank you. Thank you. We're not as good because, the, because man, I don't know if you've been able to do songwriting rounds with, with musicians from the seventies. Like, I, oh my like, gosh. Like, like with John Oates, I'll do stuff with John Oates sometimes, or the guy from Ambrosia, I've, I space on his name. Yes. Yes. But yes. Those guys were, they, they grew up playing jazz and, and music theory. And I come from the, 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 the world of REM and the Smiths and I couldn't play I love '70s rock like Van Halen and and uh, and, and and Journey and stuff like that. I yes, love yeah, all that, yeah. but I couldn't play those guitar parts. So it wasn't until REM came along and stuff like, oh, I can play and compete. Yeah, so yeah. that's the world I come from. So I'm I'm a, I'm in a very first position chord world. So yeah, the idea, yeah. like you know, Kevin, do the inversion seventh and the suspended eighth and nine, and I'm like, what? It's like witchcraft. It's like you might, might as well be a Wiccan or, a, or talk, talk, talking to me like a oh, druid yeah. or something. Uh, <laughs> so I think that they were better musicians. So that, that world wasn't foreign or scary or like a door that shouldn't be, you know, unlocked. So the modulation is so cool. That said, talking about hollow notes, the best modulation in my in, in come my on, come on, come on, come on, it's four minutes and twenty seconds into "She's Gone" by Hollow Notes, where they go where they go up three half steps, then they finally go. <laughs> <"She's gone!" laughs> 
And it's so it's such a release. It's an it's an orgasmic musical <laughs> moment, you yeah. know. And uh, and I gotta say, I should heed my own words because Better Than Ezra's biggest song, "Good," modulates at the bridge. No, it goes up a whole step and then goes back down. Goes back down. Talk to me. Preach on this second. What are we missing without key changes? Why is it so important? Well, what it does, it it. It takes a song to a whole new place, and it's just it's it's just really like jumping. It's like just taking a leap, you know. As they say, leap and the net will appear. That's what we all mm. need to do today. Mm, thank leap you. And the net will appear. So that that net, in musical terms, is the modulation. So I, I want I want somebody like like uh, Ed Sheeran or. What's the guy who is um, Billy Eilish's? Uh, oh, uh, yeah, Phineas. Phineas, or somebody like that, or even like the Killers, you know, to do it to, to do a new single, and it's got an unabashed seventies change. change. And I, th- I think suddenly, because it's like you're always like, how do what do we bring back? You're all we're always recycling. Let's bring back and recycle key the change. modulation, the key. And change. I agree. I think I think it's a color in a color wheel. Like any tool, you know, like, uh, oh, we should uh, get the melody higher in the courses. We should do a bridge that does halftime. Whatever those little tools are, key change is a tool to me that just sadly is atrophy. It's like because we don't know how to do it, it's it's sort of not on your little color wheel anymore. And we're scared. of it. We, we, we laugh. Yeah. We laugh at it. But in, in truth, we're frightened of it. It's funny when we're writing songs, it's like you get to the second verse and you've, ri- you've written half that second verse. And like, should we do ye old half second verse? And you go, why, yes, we should. And then you get to the, you finish the second chorus. Should we do ye old breakdown third chorus? Or ye old bring back second pre-chorus for a quiet for the bridge. intro. Yes. <laughs> so let's bring back the really ye old. And, and when I say old, it's with an E at the end. Ye old. Yeah, yeah, ye old. So, so this, is, this is a good chance for me to bring up good, the song. Yes. This song, I could do a five hot takes on this song. I really could. And l- let me tell you why. I- I'll sort of, because I, I want to talk about good. It is so full of hooks. I, I think, uh, you know, one of my premises, premises, premises on. Premise. Uh, Premise. <laughs> Thank you. Like side. Uh, Premise from the Latin to to posit. The uh, Gaelic, which was ferocity. Oh, my God. I digress. But the thing about good, I, I really love doing this in this podcast, is I feel like when you sort of peel back layers on songs at work, right? When you sort of lift the hood on these on these monumental songs hit songs That's most of nice. the time well it's it is you, you realize the, you see the inner workings of why these things hold up i want to sort of walk through this song oh god i love this yeah yeah buckle up so you have the intro which is it is the beginning of hooks like you're like oh i like this already which uh, let me tell you the magic juice that i love that you did that c7 oh, that's yeah. people people sleep on that chord because if you look up tabs on that song everybody's like Oh, here the chorus. I'm like, no, that's not right. Yeah, people leave out the seven, and it's yes. that's half the hook, right? The dominant seven. This the C seven was the if you wanted to unlock the door of alternative rock for the nineties, yes. and step into and dance with Sauron, then then <laughs> then you had to use the seven. Otherwise, you're playing a John Denver song. Listen, 
Was the C seven the ring to roll the ball? Was that what it was? Oh yeah, it was yeah. That. When Frodo goes into that <laughs> nether world where he's half ghost, that's that that the musical equivalent of the ring is as a C seven. <laughs> I'm never. I'm just laughing about that. I'll take it. Okay, so the cord to rule them all. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! I can't stop laughing. Okay, so then, but then here's just the brilliance of the song just kind of keeps on pointing. So you have the intro, then everything drops out. So you have the bass. So you're singing on top of just the bass and the drums, which is so great. No electric guitar, which kind of comes in and out. You know the turnarounds. The blah seven blah blah blah. Yeah 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 yeah. It's great. So, so so already there's unrest that sort of thing goes away to this sort of simplistic thing again, right? Right. The Wahoo, which is, I mean, dude, and this is what I love about David. This is why it's wah uh. Wah uh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Is it a wah uh pedal? It's trademarked. (laughs) In fact, I'm getting charged for every time I've said it. So here's the thing that I love about this, Kevin, is I love, you know, someone's natural gift for something when at such a young age, somehow in your, Bird just nailed my window, uh, somehow in your juvenile brain, you thought, hey, that's cool to do. Like, you know, you weren't sitting around. Yes, you had information and music coming in. But just in your sort of God-given weird natural abilities, you, young KG, was going, oh, that's a cool hook. And it keeps happening through the song. So you have, wow, thank you. Uh, Then there's a turnaround. Now, when the electric guitar comes in, I think this is fascinating, it's a hook. So you're not just chucking along. You know what I mean? Like, because that—that's a very thought-through thing. I'm assuming, right? It is, and, and it's, it's funny because it's such a simple song. And look, that—that that song is is the blueprint of uh, of the '90s. Really, it was all about using the same chords and using dynamics right. to make the changes. And there's a great—the name of a Pixies documentary was called "Loud, Quiet, Loud." And, and that's what it was. It was all about the use of distortion pedals. But it, then it goes. But but when I wrote that song, I, I was listening to a bunch of Dylan, and I was like, Oh my God, he's just doing the same chords and using dynamics, and then and just changing his melodies. It doesn't need to be difficult. It, so it was really overt when I when I wrote good. It was really uh, a try, an exercise in trying to write a Dylan song, but with, but with having REM, but especially the Pixies in my brain. But you know, it was. Uh, it's a wash of those things. Wah-uh was supposed to be a lyric. No! It was supposed to be a lyric, but I played the song during soundcheck at this place called W.C. Don's in Jackson, Mississippi. Come on, get in. The get first in, place we ever played it was in Jackson, Mississippi. It was W.C. Don's was a double wide trailer. And uh, and I didn't have the lyrics finished, but but we played it and people went batshit crazy. And so you just left it. You went, that's we left it. it. Oh yeah, Wa'an became the man. See, this is uh, this is you don't understand. You're stoking the fires of Mount Doom inside me, Kevin. Yeah, uh, for staying with the analogy. But then we can't sleep on this. We have to go back to what you said: the key change up, back down. Yeah, talk. Please explain that to me. You know, it's funny. Before you know, before you know what not to do, you do stuff. And when you listen to your old, if you listen to your old Dave Barnes records, like, what was I thinking? (laughs) You know. I listened to like the the bridges of King of New Orleans and Desperately Wanting. It's just this riff d- tangent that just goes out, and and it was like and and there's just this naivete in this uh, this the allure of something that's just so wrong. It really sticks out, and I honestly don't remember why we went up, but at some point we we're like, I don't want to do a lead. Let's do a key change. And the funny thing is, I remember going, okay, is this, uh, I'm up a whole step, that's A major, E major, F sharp minor, D seventh, you know, and... And then you go back down. It's so plotting and caveman-esque. 
But man, it just works. It just caveman esque is the name of my next. Okay. Song, by the way. <laughs> I thought that was the name of your autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this is weird. This is weird because I literally we'll get. I want to get back to this after this next hot take because you. I I feel like you're reading my notes on this, Kev, because I have literally those two songs and bridges. But we're gonna get to that. We're gonna get to that. Okay. So let's talk about hot take two. Hot take two. Hot take two. This is a quick one. And I'm going to, this is like the best podcast are controversial. So let's just <laughs> right into it. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm going to say that the best song ever written with the title Jolene uh, is not written by Dolly Parton. Oh, I like this. Ray LaMontagne. Oh God. And I love Dolly Parton. She's my favorite, but it, um, Jolene by Ray LaMontagne uh, came on uh, the Spotify machine the other day. And I was like, you know, I was reminded how it's, it's the, the, the best lyrics, the best melody, the best heartbreaking song I've ever heard. And it's just one of my favorites. So I look, I love Jolene, you know, the Dolly Parton vert, uh, song, but in the pantheon of Jolene songs, and there's so many going. <laughs> I love that. I, I love this. The Ray LaMontagne Jolene, you know, cocaine flame in my bloodstream, sold my coal when I hit Spokane, bought myself a hard pack of cigarettes in the early morning rain. Uh, these days, my hands, they don't feel like mine. My eyes been burned by dust I'm blind, held you in my arms one time for so long. And then that uh, Jolene. Oh, it's just so good. It's one of my favorite things about music. Uh, and I've talked about this some on the podcast that you can, you can have the same title and Jolene is not a girl. You're the best. That was ballsy for him to do. It was. You, you may as well call a song stairway to heaven and, or yeah. California. <laughs> I mean, you don't write a song called Jolene and, and he was so, maybe he was like, you know, knowing Ray Lamontagne, he'd be like, I just, I never had heard this song, Jolene. Oh, you know that's the truth. No, he did said that. Oh, yeah. He had never heard that. So, Jolene, don't you think it is interesting? I think the Dolly song informs his, though. I think most people listen with that song in mind. It's not that it's the same girl, obviously, but I think because you know that. I think if he had written Jolene as an up song, it'd be a different story. Right. Because it stays in that path of heartbreak pain, I can't help but wonder if it informs how you listen to the new one. Almost like a sequel. Maybe. Gosh, that's a that's a deep thought that I, that I haven't even considered, Dave. And leave it to me to go somewhere intellectually where I I don't fear to tread, but I don't even know it exists. And maybe there's a long there's a long history in literature of taking a historic figure in a novel and writing a whole new story about that. Yeah, yeah. I just think it's interesting. Yeah. So maybe if 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 queried. And let's let's if, if if when queried, thus spoke Ray Lamontagne. You know, maybe Ray would say, "Yes, I wrote it as a, as the voice or the in a narrative of the man that that uh, Jolene stole from the narrator in Dolly Parton." So maybe he right. say that. But at any rate, I prefer. I, I just I, think listen. I respect. It's that. rare to, to 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 take that on and then to up the raise the bar up the ante with somebody as great a songwriter. That's all they part. That's just, a, you know, and, and it's a bold move, but, uh, you know. So let's circle back. I, I want to talk about this. You, you talk about the bridges, which I literally, I literally had written those songs down. I would add to that there. Well, just in general, I think one of the things that's really fascinating about your writing is I sort of did this deep dive, which is funny because I knew these songs anyway so well. But 
to me, and, and this is, I'm going to, I'm going to push back with a hot take. I, I kind of believe this and I don't know if, it, I don't know if this will ruffle the feathers uh, of many small villages, but I do feel like sometimes I really struggle with this. I think some songwriters sometimes are only as good as their bridges are. And I think one thing that you do a really good job of, I think you are, you are really, really, really good at this. This may be osmotic. It may be purposeful, but I think you have an incredible understanding of a bridge is another way to make this song great. Not let's get through the bridge so we can get back to the chorus. And I think something, and, and to the point, and you said this yourself, Kev, like with, with, um, you know, King of New Orleans and especially that, and, um, Desperately warning, which to me I want to talk about odd timing, but that's even another point. Okay, <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. That's a whole other thing. Oh, but time I do shift. <laughs> time shift with Kevin and Dave. Where they move just that, move that. Rush. What would what would our tagline? What would our opening thing we say? Wow, wow, wow! This is time shift with Dave and Kevin. It, it would be something about the passing of time. So I think. I think you're just such a great bridge writer. I think you really... I, I wrote, that may be a really sweet, real uh, 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 prop, or it may be the biggest dig ever. No, 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 no. Because to me, I feel like most most people approach songs in the in, in the songwriting world, especially in the professional songwriting, a bridge is a pain. You get to the bridge. It's like if you're driving along, you hit where you're about to do the bridge, and you can feel it in the room. Everybody's like, oh, okay. What do we do now? I think that's really different as an artist, right? Because you are sitting by yourself most of the time, with especially back in the day, and you're writing those songs. So you're not having the counsel of Elrond. I love that we're sticking to this, but you know where you're going. Like, should we do this? It not- for Robert Plant. Let's have everything we write and do have something to do with Lord of the Rings. Or- <laughs> I know. I'll never forget when I realized that, which is a whole other podcast. But um, I-, I would love to hear sort of your perspectives on that because I just don't think you ever shirt bridges. Like. You, you seem to really step into them. Well, let's first reflect on the state of bridges now. <laughs> and we'll call this the bridges of Madison. What the fuck happened to bridges? <laughs> yeah, where did they go? <laughs> I, I literally wrote, I literally wrote next to about bridges. I said, I should call him New York for how, uh, New York City for how much he loves bridges. You know, <laughs> I digress. I digress. But now uh, songs are super short. You know, when, when I'm writing, when writing a song, good was three minutes and nine seconds. I know that because the label wanted to make it shorter. Yeah. And we're like, no, it's fine. Uh, but now so many songs you listen to on the radio are two and a half minutes to two minutes, 50 seconds, you know, and there is no space for a bridge. And when in songwriting, especially pop songwriting sessions, no one wants to do a bridge. You'll just do some cool uh, uh, manipulation of a vocal melody and use Alter Boy and pitch it up and twist it and mangle it and throw it into RC20, which is, you know, retro color uh, plug in, you know, and and you don't do a bridge. But certainly for the heyday of Better Than Ezra and still for me this to this day, the bridge is just this great palate cleanser, breath of fresh air, a tool or opportunity to to do a mission statement of the entire song, two thirds of the way through the song. Yes, you know you can say in your bridge what the whole song is about if you're lucky enough to catch that muse. I always like. I mean, it's when you're writing a song, it's really like running around the room with the butterfly net trying to catch right, right, thing. right. And it's always there. Most of the times you don't see it, but it, but that that game changing song is always there. And so that game-changing lyric that can be your your bridge uh, is always there. But, you know, it's funny. Now when I play Better Than Ezra songs and I get to the bridge of, say, 
a life a song called A Lifetime. You know, oh my gosh, and yes. they were like these epic scene changes, you know, and it they were big and tons of movement and and so I I loved the bridge. I love bridges. They're almost kind of a joke, you know, like you pop your head into a songwriting, you know, into that, you know, if you're if you're a publisher on Music Row, you stick your head and you go, hey, guys, you need a bridge. You know, <laughs> that's a good song. You need a bridge for it. You know, there's a famous writer who's known for sticking, who really is. And there's no irony. Uh, there's a famous, successful Nashville songwriter who is known for sticking his head into hit, hit songwriter rooms. and go, hey, guys, can I write a bridge to that song? Dude, I mean, for sure. And, and we'll talk off, off. Off the record, we'll talk. OTR. And we'll probably yeah. say, we'll, we'll go one, two, three, and we'll say his name. And I know, I, I know. Maybe she. Maybe he or she. We're, yeah. Listen, and I like that you're not binary. You're 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 not a binary gender uh, podcast. You. You're gender neutral, you. and yes. you've always been gender neutral to me. And uh, and I feel good about that. <laughs> That's why I agree to do the podcast. Thank you. For that. Thank you. You'll need to reread that uh, contract, by the way. Give me three. What's your what's hot take three? Hot take three. Hot take number three is there's a, a lot of great leads. Now, I'm not talking about guitar hooks like beginning of Sweet Child of Mine. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a great solo like the the, the ones that Dave Gilmer did, uh, Gilmore did for, for Pink Floyd. Like those, those two solos in Comfortably Numb. Hold a second. Hold a second. Oh, you know it. You're going to play it and it's going to make me happy. Look at you busting it out. Yeah, it's something like that. Anyhow, but my favorite, my favorite solo ever is. Oh, I love this. I love this. And you're going to know it. And it needs, and here, here's what defines a great solo. If it's going to, if it's going to live in this, this, this heady realm is it's got to be a solo that when you say the song, you instantly know what, what the solo is. And it's a song by the Commodores. And the song is called easy. Dude, come on. Brown, 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 brown. Okay, that is. I mean, who was the, who was the guitarist? I mean, Lionel didn't write that. He probably just said, "Yo, Jimmy, put give me a lead." And Jimmy, or I'm just saying, whoever yeah. did it, sweet Jimmy, guitarist, sweet Jimmy, did it, and it's so iconic. And there's so many iconic leads, um, but that's one that just comes on. You're like, oh my god, and 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 arguably it, he should have gotten songwriting uh, for that solo contribution. Okay, Kevin, let me ask you this. When you hear that, so what do we have to learn from that performance? Like it, it, for, for all the for all the musicians, for all the listeners to all the songwriters, but I, I would say for all the players especially, what's the takeaway? The takeaway is that every part of the song is an opportunity to have a hook. Come on. Every part, you know, from the beginning to the end, the bridge to that last, listen, the song Good has, at the, the, the last second has something that fans live for and it's tom drummond through a distorted little uh cassette player microphone microphone going yeah that's right i'm never afraid of like where can we add a little hook where can we add this ear candy and the and and a guitar lead spend time on that lead and then and then take whatever you've done and dumb it down and 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 if in doubt, then go listen to Mike Campbell play some solos for, for Tom Petty. And he's the king of it. These, these great hooky 
uh, guitar parts, but but a lead can just be listen to that lead, listen to Mike Campbell leads, listen to David Gilmore leads, and spend time and just and just woodshed on the lead and make it iconic. I, I think of that solo especially, and the personality of that solo is what makes it what it is. Oh like, yeah, it's it, like I want to do. Like in every, you know, it's all fuzzed uh, out, and it just sounds so dope. And and <laughs> but you know, there was a guy like me in that room going like, "That's not going to work." Oh yeah, and I'm, like, I'm so glad he didn't listen to that guy. He was like, "I think it's weird and cool," and now it's one of the best guitar solos of all time. You know, there's also like, uh, if you listen to Maggie May, Rod Stewart. There's uh, a guitar solo that just—it's not a baritone guitar part, but it's—it's it's in the mid mid range, yeah. And then it just goes down super super low and kind of distorts the input level. And they kept it, you know, and, and and it's just dope. And and it's just those moments that 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 make a classic song. And Easy was already a hit. It's Lionel Richie. It's the Commodores, you know. But that that solo is what just, takes for me is the is the, the Maraschino Cherry on the top. Let's talk about um, Odd Time. And I, and I really want to say this. One of the things that I've always loved about the Better Than Ezra records, and I would say especially to me, Friction Baby and How Does Your Garden Grow, is the drums. And so I grew up a drummer. The drums are so... I didn't know that. Really? Can you play yeah, drums? Yeah. That's what, I, that's what I went to college for. I'm terrible. I no, it's, no it's, I'm terrible it. now. But you I can't manufacture drum talent. No, you, no. You can have no, guitar, no talent in guitar and bass and pass. You can be pass, passable. But if you if you don't have the gift of this this Ginger Baker, Dave Barnes, Neil Peart, no, thank you. You know, yeah. <laughs> then you just are, you're just you're going to sound terrible. And that's so. So what is that about you and especially the band that you got that you guys were collectively so in agreement with, I mean, even on uh, deluxe, I mean, those, those two instruments are really featured bass and drums. You know, uh, I think of, I do actually off of closer and the bass part on that, which is incredible, but like you as a band, you like, you're not the, you're not the lead singer who's going like, everybody's got to shut up and make room for the song. You really have this understanding of like, I mean, I think of at the start, I mean, dude, that there are uh, live again to me is one of my, and I'm, I'm going to do a hot take on this some way. It's one of the best drum parts in the history of time. In the history of time, what, why why is that such a big deal, and why are you so okay with that being what it is, a feature? First off, for you to to say that is very uh, flattering, and and thank you very much because um, that that you feel that way is is super cool because. I learned really early on that the best bands were this rare convergence and in the millions of bands that get formed and break up and suck and that are great. The best bands are this rare, rare instance where three, four, five people get together and they each bring something unique to the table. And, um, you know, look, the Beatles, the Who, um, they're just, just, there's just so many bands where they brought something. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not putting better than SRF in that, but in our own modest way, I realized that, you know, if our band was going to be successful, uh, it was going to have those elements and it's not, and I really think what you're talking about really st started happening at, on our second album, Friction Baby, when we got Travis McNabb on drums. Tom Drummond, our, uh, our bass player, already had this great sound. And, and look, he was a 90s bass player with a Spectre bass and a pick, you know. But then, but then soon we were like, you got you to drop the Spectre. Let's just get a P bass. Let's get a Fender P bass. 
But he just has this, this, Tom has this great aggressive picky, but, but with some warmth bass playing style. And look, he was a, he was a big Getty Lee fan, big yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. John and Twistle fan really with the second album. I'd always admired Travis McNabb's drum drumming and Travis grew up in new Orleans and he was a, he was a student of Zigaboo Modalest, which is the drummer from the meters. And he was a student of that second line drum playing, which is playing at the back of the, the pocket, that just greasy new Orleans vibe. And suddenly with friction baby, and then moving forward, especially like on how does your garden grow songs like live again, there's just this greasy shuffle second, second line, uh, dr- drumming. And I just realized like, look, you know, we've always been a three piece in order for our band to be successful. Each player has to have their own personality That's right. That's and, their own right. voice and their own space. And I know this because, you know, when you do, you, you do a demo in the studio and you program the drums and you play bass and you play guitar and you play, it's so one dimensional. Yeah. At least for me, like there's, yeah. there's, yeah. there's yeah. the yeah. princes of the world and there's her, that new, a new artist, her, but Lenny Kravitz, but for most of us, it becomes one dimensional because we hit the whatever instrument we're playing, we're, we're hitting at the same a point in the pocket, uh, you know, and everything becomes one dimensional. It doesn't have any depth. So when with a great band and with those those players, uh, suddenly we became one of those in our own way, became one of those uh, rare bands that has each has those elements. Um, and, and it's always been a, a check to me. Because I've seen too many bands, great bands, whether it was The Police or Tears for Fears, or, or it, so many bands where they broke up and the lead singer went off on his own. And more often than not, it wasn't nearly as good as that band. And what made that band so great was the tension and that the drummer didn't believe the hype about the singer and that they fought and they and they butted heads. But the end result that made it through that creative sieve and pass a litmus test and it was, you know, you're a foil to each other in a great band uh, was that finished product. And yeah. so that was really overt and, and recognizing that and saying, you know, we, we each have a, a voice and, and Tom has his style. I've got my my literal voice. And then our drummers, whether it's Michael Jerome on drums now. Yeah, yeah. Beast and Incredible. So good. And Travis McNabb and, and some of the studio drummers we've used. It's always trying to keep that distinct uh, DNA. Well, and you know, too, I'll say, too, the Deluxe has that, too. I mean, I think anybody that had a brain could have heard that record and gone, this is going to be a really good band for a long time. Because... In my humble opinion, that I mean, even with good, the drums on good, and you know, the, everything is there. It's not people. It's not people just playing. There's thought to what is happening. There's space for each other, and even on deluxe, like it's all throughout deluxe. So I think what's fun to really follow y'all's career, even now, like the newest records, there's there's a real thought to what's happening, and I think that that usually yields really great results because I think it shows some intentionality that, that really makes songs better. It's interesting because there was a series of albums, uh, DVDs that came out, uh, I don't know, in the 90s, early 2000s. They were called classic albums. Remember those? Oh, dude, I wore those out. Oh, my God. Like, like the the uh, Songs in the Key of Life, Forget Stevie Wonder, the uh, Elton John by Yellow Brick Road or Joshua Tree. 
And you go back and you're reminded that, oh, these these albums just didn't happen. That's right. They were slaved over and worked over and very overt. And yes, there was divine. There was this divine inspiration that happened on the fly. But there was also a very um, clinical way of putting the record together. That's right. We did that, too. I mean. You can't manufacture Inspirato as Jack That's Black right. once famously right. <laughs> in, in HSD. Yeah. But, but once you have that inspiration, man, honing it down and, and crafting it and making it bulletproof uh, was something better than Ezra certainly did. And uh, and look, man, you know, that's why better than Ezra's still around. I mean, we, we've uh, a lot of our bands, our peers that sold a lot more records than us and had a moment bigger than us are, are, are no longer around. And we're still doing you know, amphitheater tours and going, well, not this summer, unfortunately, but, you know, we had one, but this is coming out in 2023, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's so backed up. So tell me what's, what's for, what's, what's the hot take for? Give it to me. Hot take four. Hot take four is that demo-itis is a real oh, thing. Man. Now, talk to that. So, demoitis is the is a term uh, derived from the Latin demotitis. <laughs> Which was from the uh, a scarab beetle uh, found in Egypt. No, I'm for demonstration of uh, you know demo uh, itis is something that when you you do a quick recording of your song, and then later you get in with a big producer who you've paid a, a quarter of a million dollars to, and you and you do the real version of the song, and then then everybody in the band, the manager, and the label are just like, man, y'all are gonna hate me for saying this. But I like the demo more. And you're like, no, but but we have London Symphony Orchestra playing on the on the song now, and it's recorded at at Blackbird or Olympic Studios. And and you're like, nope, that that one you did on the laptop, the shitty version, that's the one that has the soul. Why is that? I think that when that first inspiration is hitting you as a songwriter and you're committing it to a work tape. And so you're hearing hit songs where the, where the vocal from the, from the iPhone uh, voice memo is being taken and stretched and manipulated. And that's the lead vocal because that first inspiration, the first time you sing it, that uncertainty in the notes, because when, when you first sing a song that you've written, you sing it much different six months later, five years later, 10 years later. And there's something about that first thing that, that lit the spark to write the song in that, in that bedroom or that writing room or that studio is, is really special. And then there's just a certain tentativeness um, about a demo. There's just a purity to it. And, and, and the greatest, one of the great stories of a, a demo, a famous demo itis, but a demo that, it was it was peerless. Was uh, someone like you, Dan Wilson and Adele? Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So check this out. So there's a studio. There was a studio in West Hollywood. Uh, it was in the alley in the 7500 block uh, of Santa Monica Boulevard. It was called Harmony Studio. A, a buddy of mine ran it, and he rented it out to to different songwriters. And Dan Wilson uh, was in there with with Adele, and she'd only done the first record with the single uh, "Chasing mm-hmm. Payments." Chasing Payments, yeah. And they were writing the song, and uh, there was this that big uh, uh, Yamaha C7 uh, grand piano in there, and uh, and they wrote "Someone Like You," a vocal and piano. And it's funny because uh, the guy who was engineering at the time, and I forget his name, and he was a he was a he was a great kid, and he. 
He ended up getting a Grammy for engineering the demo. So I'm giving away this, the twist at the end. So they they wrote, they did the demo of someone like you. And like, oh my God, we love this song. One of the greatest songs ever written, in my opinion. And then they, they went back to London, um, they being Adele, and she got with Paul Epworth, her producer, and they got with the biggest studio musicians. I'm not sure where they recorded it, probably Air Studios or Olympic or Abbey Road. And they had the London Symphony Orchestra playing on the song. And after they spent countless thousands of dollars, what happened? They were like, the demo, the vocal and the piano is the best thing. There's mm. got there's a vulnerability, there's uh, uncertainty, there's a rawness to the emotion. And uh, so and that ended up becoming, you know, a worldwide number one. Uh, Dan got a, a, a Grammy, I think, for producing that. Producing. Uh, and the guy who actually did it was who, who did his name was Paul Allen because it's the same name as uh, the Microsoft guy who passed mm-hmm. away. Recently. But he got a Grammy for engineering it. So it was just amazing. But there's a lesson to be learned there. First, you know, when you're doing your demo, um, take it seriously because these days in with with digital recording, you can yeah. take digital and you can can manipulate it and do so many things with it and you just never know uh take your time with it or just throw it down but but the demo itis is real there's a reason there's you know and it's not in uh the ama american medical association doesn't recognize it as a condition you know but demo itis is uh right up there that's not as bad as colitis that's true Tonsillitis, but both of them do stink. Demoitis is a is a real thing, and we need to start recognizing. Have you? Do you have an example of that in your career? A song like that? Juicy, really? Juicy was on the Better Than Ezra 2005 album uh, before the Robots, and the vocal you hear uh, is the demo vocal, and it's all gibberish in the verses. All the words I'm sing- singing uh, were just, was just gibberish, and the funny thing is, I had to go back. Uh, when we were doing the lyrics for the album and I had to reverse engineer the lyrics because we ended up, so I ended up writing lyrics and re-singing the vocal and it just sounded whack. And so we were like, the demo lyrics, the demo vocal sounds great. Why aren't we keeping that? I'm like, because it's gibberish. So they were like, well, we're keeping that. And I was like, okay. And so I, and so the lyrics you ever read for the song are really just they're not real because the real lyrics that I'm singing are gibberish. It's some strange. So now Juicy, you know, I mean, I think it went to number 14 on Hot AC or something like that. But that is that song, you know, got licensed to this day, gets licensed so much. And it's crazy. But 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 uh, the demo and I couldn't recapture the offhanded, you know, this I wasn't taking it serious. So I was just being silly. I just had this drum beat I found. I wanted to do a song that sounded like P-Funk. And uh, so that's my that's my demo. You know, it's funny. I think about that with, uh, and I actually have done a five-hot take on this, but um, Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, Soul to Squeeze. Dimma don don to say, don begin to mama dimma don Like I mean, that was a number one alternative rock song and absolutely has one of the most bizarre moments so let me ask you this before we get to our final hot take final hot take you you bring up dan wilson um who much like you is you know had uh is is in a band semi-sonic that had great success you guys it's funny because this actually dovetail joints really great in my last question you know you guys both have had success as songwriters and as artists 
What do you think, like, the longer you've been writing songs, what gets harder the longer you write, like, songs? The heart is remembering to keep it simple, is not be afraid to just just use a lot of the same chords you've always used, to not second-guess yourself. Like, for me as a songwriter, for other people, it's so much easier because I'm not thinking about, oh, did I already do that chord progression before? Is this cool enough for my fans? Uh, It's just something I would say. I'm just throwing stuff out there. And inspiration happens that way. It doesn't come tentatively or it doesn't, it it doesn't, you know, make an appointment with you to, to, to inspire you. It just comes out of the blue. And, and so when you're, when I'm writing songs and not second guessing myself and I have no other consideration than what is, what, what suddenly inspires me, that's when I get the best songs. So as a, as an artist, it's harder and harder to remember that. Just like, man, just write a simple song. And then I always, if I'm having a problem, I'm like, I go listen to Tom Petty. Tom Petty was the king of all through his career. It's so simple and brilliant, stripped down. How do I, okay, How do, I've said this and I've got this music and I've got these lyrics. How do I do some judicious editing and strip away the, the fat and just get to the meat of the song and make it simple? Keep it simple, stupid is such a great thing. So so I have no fear of just writing simple songs because I did get to a point where I was like, oh, I need to use these chords I've never used or this progression I really don't understand that's not that great or I've got to do a time change or something like that, which when it's fun, it, it, when it works, it works. But I just like keep writing simple songs. I'm not afraid of writing you know, this, a three-chord song, a four-chord song. It's the yeah. same thing. Yeah. So... It's just to to not try to second guess myself and not try to impress myself and just and just say and just write what you know and write what you're good at because I don't know did you ever want to be a different artist than you actually were uh, every day you know what I mean and I'm like man I I do really well writing a pop song that's got a little left you know left of center vibe but I'm not going to be I'm not going to write Kid A. Uh, you know, I'm not that guy, you know, and, and so let them do what they do really well. And I'm going to do what I re- do really well and be happy with that and and just live in that lane. OK, so what's the uh, what's the final hot take? What's the dish? Hot take five. The final hot take is God, this is a whole thing. I was thinking about debut albums. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The yep. final hot take is the best debut album of a band. Of an oh, now, oh, now, which is big, which is you're big. coming in like lava hot on this one. So, so this is a lot of ears pricked up late in the podcast. I know, <laughs> like I don't, I, I, I think everything you've said is horseshit thus far, Kevin. But you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna step your toe into the heated waters of debut. Oh, I am dying to hear this. At first, I was going to say Beastie Boys licensed to ill, but that's just something you would I would be expected to say. <laughs> oh, man. Then, so I, then I was going to say Violent Femmes, Violent Femmes, the first album, but then oh. that would make me sound too old. Mm-hmm. Then I was going to say uh, Jeff Buckley, Grace, oh, my gosh. Which, is, which is one of the greatest debuts of album, but he put three covers on it. He mm. did oh, Hallelujah. Yeah, yeah. He did Lie Like Wine by Nina Simone and Hallelujah's Leonard Cohen. And then he did Corpus Carry Crystal, which is a, you know, a traditional yeah, yeah. A Christian song. So I was like, that's not it. And so I'm going to go with hot take number five, best debut go. album, 
the killer's hot fuss. Oh, tell me why. Walk me through it. Walk me through it. Because from the beginning song, every song is peerless and it's perfect. And and then the then uh, Brandon Flowers' lyrics and the attitude and the consistency of the sound, this post-punk new wave uh, tip of the hat to the cars and uh, sound is just consistent through the whole record. And I just listened to it and I'm just like, God, I hate you guys because it's so good. And, you know, and even even the mixing by, in, in production by Mark Needham, if you listen to, if you AB that album to, to other albums, it just sounds like crap. It's just small and dirty, but that was intentional. So the Killer's Hot Fuss is, you know, for me is the best band artist debut in my opinion. And look, this is, again, these are, these are treacherous waters. You know, there's, there's chum, there's chum right down the water. Well, there's sharks, there's, there's sharks, you're surfing. You know, to me, Brandon Flowers, I think is going to be, you know, and he is now, thank God, because he's still active and still as amazing as he's always been. But I really do think in retrospect, he's going to be one of those guys that's really sneakily undervalued. I think for a lyricist, for a songwriter. Yeah. And I think his solo albums have made great, great steps toward people realizing, because I think when you have an album, when you have a sound like the killers, it's really easy to not realize what's going on. Cause it's so anthemic. It's so big and it's so um, efforted in a good way. His vocals are so, you know, they're so in front of your face, but I think, you know, cause I'll be honest with you, I'm not really a killers guy. And it took, now let me say this, it took a friend of mine who I have a lot of respect for about two years ago. He's like, you need to spend more time with him. And I was like, I can't, it's just not my thing. But the minute I was like, all right, I'm going to sort of reapproach. I was like, dude, this stuff is so profound. And I think even more so when you see interviews with him or really realize how much he knows what he's doing. It oh, yeah. was like, Oh, okay. I love a band that has a vision and a sound and a a whole persona from out of the gates. Because most of us don't know, you know, and it was so uh, meticulous. And that album is that. It is the sound of a band from Vegas. Yes. You know, it's glittery and it's decadent and it just sounds so good and timeless. You know, and then and then later albums, you know, I mean, I made fun of that song. Are we human? Oh, are we dancer? And then I was like, oh, are we dancer? What? That's terrible. Now I love that song. It's incredible. You know, and, and their newest single, Caution, is right up there with all their best songs. You know, so I'm just a fan. I love a band just con- being consistent and having a return to form and just being around. Because as you know, in our business, and you, uh, it's hard to stick stick around and, and and continue writing good music and not get disenchanted or break up or whatever, you know. And I love it that they're just a band making great music. And the last pilgrimage festival, uh, yeah, they they dude. played pilgrimage festival and they came out and they did some cars because Rick Ocasek had just passed away. And I got to meet them and 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 see them live. And I was like, oh my god, they're even great live. One of my friends saw them at Glastonbury. And John, do you know John Green? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Incredible writer. So John was telling me, he was like, it was one of the most epic moments of my life. He sent me a video 
and, and they said it's seeing that many people and then playing. He's like, I just, I've had rare moments in my life that felt uh, like that moment. He's like uh, Elvis and Frank Sinatra. Yes. Mixed in and throw a little Mormon in there. Yeah. And you've got, uh, I would say too, he's got a, to me and I'm not the most educated, but I always think of him as like a Bruce Springsteen. He's got a really it's honest, unabashed. Yes. His love for Springsteen is unabashed and you can, you can hear it. And uh, when you were young or even hear it in caution, you mm-hmm. know, from Sam's Town, which was the second record on, you really hear the Springsteen. Uh, but but Hot Fuss was just this moment, like all the great debut albums that, because Better Than Ezra Deluxe was not, like fans may think this, but as an artist, I don't think it, it was peerless from the start to finish. But that album is just, uh, Hot Fuss is just, ugh, it's just bulletproof. Well, look at us. We did it, didn't we? We did it. Oh, my God. People have been hot. They've been five hot taken at this point. Dude, thank you for doing this. Hey, listen, no one's going to uh, be upset with you or blame you if after this podcast you just say, what's the point in doing anymore? <laughs> and, 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 and close shot. And <laughs> All of the hottest takes have been taken. There's no point. There's no yeah. point to continue after the KG. DB and KG. Well, thank you for doing that. Brother, I'm such a fan, and thank you. I'm honored. I am a little miffed that you've done uh, 13 episodes of Dadville, and uh, I haven't. Hey, listen, one. there's more. One of the best known dads out there. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we want. Dave's five hot takes. Yeah.